Good evening. I'm Carla Hayden, CEO of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and we're delighted to have you here. This is a, a series that we're very proud of, and especially the library's partnership with Open Society Institute Baltimore. Um, this series has been thought-provoking and enlightening, and we think that we've hit a nerve because it has attracted attention and it is talking about important issues and tackling issues connected to something sometimes we don't like to talk about that much, race. And so I just want to personally thank Open Society Baltimore uh, for giving us that opportunity to show that the library, and uh, we've been accused of many things, one of having everybody with different types of views being able to not only have, as they call it, the, it used to be before the electronic age, the books would battle it out on the shelf. So we might have a book about one view right next to the book about the other. And we'd have a group over here saying, take that book off the shelf, and a book over there, a group over here saying, take that one off. And we would always say, let the ideas um, battle it out. And so now that we're in the electronic age, there's someone here that's tweeting and twittering, and it's going to be tweeting during this, but we think that the the... Uh, respectful exchange of ideas and being able to let people form their own views is is even more important today. So tonight we are honored to have three special guests with us to guide us to through another memorable conversation. So to introduce our special guest tonight is the director of the Open Society Institute Baltimore, Diana Morris. Well, good evening. I'm delighted to be here, and I welcome all of you to this special evening. Uh, as always, I want to thank Carla and the Pratt Library for being such a wonderful partner with us in this Talking About Race series. Um, I also want to thank Robin and Jimmy Wood, Kelvin and Lydia Baker, Vernon Reed, Sandy Rosenberg, and Hassan and Amy Murphy, because they have really chosen to support this series uh, because they felt it was so important to have this kind of discussion in our community. Actually, the Talking About Race series was intended just to be one year long, but there has been such great interest in the community about this series that we've decided that uh, people want to talk about different kinds of aspects of the race issue, and we have extended it. In fact, we are hoping that you will join us on January 12th, to hear Isabel Wilkerson, who is the Pulitzer Prize winning author of The Warmth of Other Suns, The Epic Story of America's Great Migration. So I think if any of you have had the chance to hear or see many of the reviews of that book, you'll want to get a copy from the library or elsewhere uh, before, that, before that talk. As many of you know, we've addressed a number of issues that not only touch upon race, but also actually relate very closely to what we do at the Open Society Institute. The work of, uh, at the Open Society Institute focuses on three big challenges in the city, tackling drug addiction, uh, curtailing the overuse of incarceration, and connecting our children to school and keeping them engaged in school and on their way to success. All these issues connect directly to race, and we touch upon it every day in our work at the Open Society Institute as we try to create more opportunity and more justice for all. We're especially concerned with people who are living in poverty and are historically or currently affected by discrimination. So the topic that we will discuss tonight has 
direct relevance to the work that we are doing in the city. Tonight, we'll talk about healing. As you will hear, on November 3rd, 1979, actually 31 years ago from yesterday, the city of Greensboro, North Carolina, experienced a terrible tragedy. A demonstration of labor workers was planned, and the Ku Klux Klan chose to drive a caravan to the site. There was no police at the site, despite the fact that it was all well uh, publicized. And what ultimately happened was that five demonstrators were killed, and 10 others were gravely wounded. Now, 25 years later, Greensboro was still a divided community, and the pain from that event was still acutely felt. So the city decided that they would embark on a quest toward truth and reconciliation. In fact, they became the first city in the United States to appoint such a commission. We've chosen to bring three people from Greensboro, Reverend Mark Sills, one of the five commissioners uh, of the Tr Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and Reverend Nelson Johnson, who was a demonstrator in 1979 and is now the executive director of the beloved community center of Greensboro, and his wife, Joyce Johnson, who's the director of the Jubilee Institute of the beloved community center of Greensboro. We felt it would be important to hear how Greensboro has dealt with their pain and to see where the community is today, several years after the commission has issued its report. We think that the lessons learned in Greensboro could be helpful to us here in Baltimore, as Baltimore still suffers from being a historically and currently segregated city. This is an opportunity for us to think about the ways that we can, in fact, heal and transform our own community. So that's what we're hoping we'll be able to talk about tonight. We're very fortunate that Judge Andre Davis, who's a member of the OSI Baltimore Board and also sits on the Federal Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, will moderate our discussion. Ladies and gentlemen, again, good evening. And let me express the appreciation of Open Society Institute, Baltimore, and Enid Pratt Library uh, for your attendance here tonight. It's my privilege to moderate tonight's discussion, and Baltimore is quite honored tonight to have as our guest three extraordinarily distinguished individuals who I would like at this time to introduce. To your right is Reverend Mark Sills, Reverend Sills served as one of the five commissioners on the Greensboro Truth and Reconciliation Commission. He is executive director of the Greensboro Faith Action International House, an interfaith, interracial, multicultural organization working to form a united community of many cultures. He is also a facilitator for the group Religious Leaders of Greensboro and a leader of retreats focused on healing racism. After graduating from high school in Lincolnton, North Carolina, Reverend Sills earned his bachelor's in religion and philosophy from Greensboro College, his master's in world Christianity from Duke, and his doctorate in comparative social ethics from the Wesley Theological Seminary. Reverend Sills is the former executive director of the Greensboro Urban Mission Ministry and former president of the Human Services Institute. 
He served as the assistant Boy Scout leader, a board member of Piedmont Interfaith Council, and as a speaker for numerous events, including Greensboro's 2004 Martin Luther King Jr. Breakfast. Next to Reverend Sills is Joyce Hobson Johnson. Ms. Johnson is the director of the Jubilee Institute of the beloved Community Center of Greensboro, which is a community-based leadership development and training entity. Her activism began in high school as a student in Richmond, Virginia during the 1960s. She struggled mightily to restore and create civil rights and open accommodations. Ms. Johnson deepened her involvement in college as one of the earliest black students at Duke University and while supporting campus non-academic employees and the movement for relevant education. She's a former university professor and research director. She also serves on the North Carolina NAACP State Executive Board, the Guilford Education Alliance Board, and the Faith Community Church Council. Though officially retired, Joyce, the BCC, and the Greensboro Justice Fund joined with other Greensboro uh, residents in 2001 to establish the Truth and Community Reconciliation Project, which was behind the creation of the commission itself. Joining us finally is the Reverend Nelson Johnson, Executive Director of the beloved Community Center of Greensboro and Pastor at the Faith Community Church. Though involved in a myriad of initiatives and activities, Reverend Johnson centers his efforts on facilitating a process of comprehensive community building, which includes a convergence of racial and ethnic diversity, social and economic justice, and genuine participatory democracy. At the beloved Community Center, he and his colleagues attempt to bring together the homeless, the imprisoned, impoverished neighborhood residents, and other disenfranchised groups in the spirit of mutual support and community. Reverend Johnson holds the bachelor's from North Carolina A&T State University and a master's of divinity degree from the School of Theology at Virginia Union University. He's been active in the movement for social and economic justice since high school, and he served as a local and national student leader during vice president including Vice President of the Student Government Association at A&T at A in Greensboro. Between high school and college, Reverend Johnson served uh, honorably, and we thank him for his service as a member of the United States Air Force. He continues to work for social and economic justice in Greensboro uh, as the Executive Director of the beloved Community Center of Greensboro. Uh, Joyce and Nelson, have been recognized for their work in many venues, including in 2005 by the prestigious Ford Foundation Award of the Leadership for a Changing World Award and by the Faith and Politics Institute of Washington, D.C., where they received the beloved Community Award. In 2008, the couple received the Purpose Prize Award from Civic Ventures of Palo Alto, uh, California. Please join me in welcoming our distinguished guests.
I remind you, ladies and gentlemen, that uh, after uh, our conversation up here, we will invite your questions. Please uh, use your pens and pencils to write your questions on the question cards which have been handed out, and we'll have staff collecting the cards at the end of the row uh, when we are ready to entertain your questions. Welcome to Baltimore. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we promise on your next visit it'll be sunny and bright. <laughs> but thank you all very much for sharing these few minutes with us tonight. Uh, let me start, if I may, with you, Reverend Johnson. Uh, we saw the video. Um, it must have been very difficult for you to sit here and watch it again. Share with us, if you would, your on-the-ground present sense of what that day must have been like. Well, first of all, let me just <clears throat> say that I'm glad to be with you. Um, I cherish these opportunities, though they're a bit challenging. Um, I was the lead organizer for the demonstration, and I negotiated the parade permit with the police. I was very clear on what we agreed on, uh, the starting place and the starting time. Um, and, <clears throat> and I agreed with Lieutenant Hampton that we would meet at this spot. Well, none of that happened. They didn't show up. And uh, instead, the Klan came, and it was uh, a shock to me. Uh, I heard the shots being fired. And um, when it was over, um, I saw uh, all five of the people and more. I really didn't know who was killed. Uh, I had been stabbed by a Nazi. Uh, I was arrested that day and put in jail and was not given a bond. Um, <clears throat> I had the sense that something had gone terribly wrong, and there was a sense of rage in me because I knew without knowing that the police had given the parade permit to the Klan or that they had gone to lunch when they should have been there, or that they facilitated them coming. I knew none of that. All of that came out later. Uh, but intuitively, I knew this could not have happened without their active involvement. And I said so, for which I was arrested. Um, and um, that day terrorized that neighborhood. Uh, a couple was getting married inside of the center uh, when the shooting started, and they had no idea what was going on. Um, and it stamped, uh, how can I say, um, it, it, it started a process that resulted in much greater distance between the black and the white population of our city. It had a chilling effect on social justice work. Uh, people wouldn't participate with it. And perhaps the worst thing is that it started a process of denial and falsification that uh, actually was so injurious to the character of the city. Uh, so those are uh, beyond the moment of uh, just seeing friends 
laying on the ground with their blood soaking into the soil. Beyond that moment, I just shared with you my sense of what grew from that in the next several days. Ms. Johnson, what, what is your recollection of what the community was like in the weeks and months immediately after the incident? Again, I join um, in thanking you for having us here with you, and thank you for the warm welcome we receive. And I hope that some things we share here will inspire you to work in whatever way that's appropriate to make your city a better, better city. But to respond to the question, um, it was just devastating. If um, you can imagine um, 11, a little past 11 in the morning on a bright, sunny November day to have um, Klan's um, and, and um, Nazis drive into a predominantly black um, housing project when people were having um, a demonstration really struggling for um, economic justice, for improvements in the school against um, the um, devastating tests that are rampant throughout this country now that really erase education and really push children toward prison rather than education. Um, our children were seven and eight years old at that time. They um, saw people who were friends, um, folks that had helped look after them get just gunned down. There were many other children there from the housing projects and all. So it was just devastating. Uh, it was terrifying. And it set us personally on a path of um, many years of our um, lives having to be um, spent on grappling with this question. Um, yet um, our friends, I mean, those were friends of mine. I was the matron of honor at Sandy Smith's wedding. One of the most difficult things I've ever had to do in my life was to tell her mother, call her in Piedmont, South Carolina, and tell her that Sandy was dead. She had... Um, we were a few years older than Sandy, and she left Sandy with us, sort of, when she went to Bennett to take care of her. We were the, I was like the big sister. So um, just all that devastation there, but out of that, um, we have pushed as hard as we could to turn that tragedy into a triumph for all people. Thank you. Uh, Reverend Sills, let me turn to you and bring us 25 years ahead. Um, what happened after 20, 25 years that prompted the community to look inward and to determine to do something about what had happened? Again, I'd like to say thanks for this opportunity to be with you and to be back in Baltimore. I was an associate pastor of the church here in the, in the early 70s. The city has changed a lot <laughs> since I was here, uh, for the better. Um, Twenty-five years later, uh, the city of Greensboro as a, as a city, as a community, uh, both officially and unofficially, was basically still ignoring the event that had taken place. Um, let me go back, if I may, to the day of the event, because I had just moved to Greensboro a few months prior to that uh, to work with the Greensboro Urban Ministry, a ministry that reached out to uh, serve the poor. And, um, and as a white man in, uh, in that city, uh, though serving uh, the poor, both white and black, uh, I was certainly more connected to the, the white privileged uh, people of the city than anywhere else. 
uh, I heard about the shootings. I knew about the, the curfews. I knew about the calling in of the National Guard. I had done some work with some of the people who were involved in the demonstration, so I had more knowledge than the average white person in the city. But I can tell you that though this was a defining event in the lives of those uh, who, who went through that event, um, both as, as victims, as perpetrators, and as witnesses, for the average person in the city of Greensboro, it was a non-event. It had no importance. The official story that was told was that this was two outside groups at war with each other, that this was not a massacre, it was a shootout, and that, um, that they brought this on themselves, and therefore it had nothing to do with Greensboro, and the average person in Greensboro believed that at the time, and 25 years later still believed that. And those who had an inkling that that may not be the truth uh, really did not want to open the book and revisit that history. And so there was considerable resistance to the idea of doing a truth commission. Uh, a lot of hard work went into leading the community to the place where a commission could be established. And I have to say that the... Um, uh, those who planned this <laughs> did so ingeniously because this was about as grassroots a democratic process as you can imagine. Uh, the way the commissioners were selected was through a completely open process. Anyone could nominate anyone. Uh, so names flowed in. And the way a selection panel was put together was to invite anyone that might have an interest to participate on the panel. So the Democratic Party was invited, and so was the Republican Party. And this was in 2004. Yes. The, uh, the uh, sons of the Confederacy were invited, and so was the, the, the daughters of the Revol American Revolution. The, uh, yeah, the, the imams uh, were invited, the, uh, the, the Catholic priests, uh, the Protestant clergy, the, the Jewish rabbis. Uh, were invited to participate in the selection process and uh, business community, possible segment of the community had a chance to, to be represented. And so the representation group or, or the selection group was extremely diverse. As a result, uh, as names came in uh, and the process was followed, uh, a selection, I mean, a, a, a set of commissioners were, was chosen which had no vested interest of any kind in any part of this. The seven commissioners, none of us knew each other. We were complete strangers to each other. We came from radically different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different uh, economic classes. And I think the result was that the commission had credibility from the beginning because of the way it was assembled. Uh, and I think if there was any kind of, of um, a positive acceptance in the larger community of, of having a truth commission, it was because of the way the commissioners were selected. No one could fault the selection. We'll come back to uh, a question of, that I asked you before about whether there was any resistance, but let me turn, if I might, to Reverend Johnson from the perspective of the community that the two of you were embedded in and 
most in contact with, was there excitement? Was there buy-in? Was there uh, a push to see this happen? What, what can you share with us? You know, when you dated in 19, um, uh, or 2004, starting the commission, the work of healing and reconciliation from our perspective uh, and the work of justice started long before that. And that was a particular moment that we had reached. In 1985, after we won a civil suit, uh, first time in the history of the nation, I believe, that Klan Nazis and the police were found jointly liable for wrongful death. Uh, on behalf of our group, I wrote a statement and invited the city uh, to come and let us start a process to turn the leaf uh, and to try to heal this deep schism and division within our community. It was rejected um, in 87 <clears throat> when the Klan was coming back to Greensboro, uh, the first time since 1979. Um, there was a counter-demonstration being planned. Uh, I was in seminary in Richmond, and uh, I was uh, contacted by the SBI and said, what are we going to do? State and Bureau of Investigation. State Bureau of Investigation, yeah. Um, most people don't know this, but I made a decision. It was a faith decision on my part to find the leaders who were planning to come to Greensboro uh, one of them you saw on the television. He was the Grand Dragon. Uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Virgil, Virgil Griffin. And, uh, uh, and I met the two, uh, and I, I got in touch with them. I'm going to abbreviate this story, but the story itself is something. Uh, I had to go down to Mount Ulla, North Carolina, on the other side of Salisbury. These places mean nothing to you. And to meet with them by myself, and plead with them not to come to Greensboro. Uh, we had a heck of a discussion. Um, and uh, all of this was part of the work that we were doing. This was in 87. This was in 87. And we were getting absolutely no credit for it. But the precipitating thing that led us to believe that the time had come to make a bold movement, we didn't know what the bold movement was, uh, is uh, on the 20th anniversary of the uh, massacre, uh, a wonderful sister named Emily Mann at Princeton um, wrote a play. And that play got put on in Greensboro. Uh, and uh, it ran for five nights. And every night was packed out. It was a kind of uh, docudrama and it did a marvelous job of telling this story. Uh, and at, uh, 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 when that was over, one of the students convinced his dad, who was on the jury that acquitted the Klan, to come to see the play. His dad came out and said, if I had known that anything like this happened, I never would have voted for acquittal. And what I learned from that is the great majority of people in Greensboro were perhaps more confused than anybody else in the world about this event exactly. because they had to endure a disinformation campaign that I would not have believed if I had not lived through it. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so it was then that we started to think, this man changed his mind (laughs) and actually came to a different view. What is it that we can do that might reach out to the hundreds and the thousands uh, and to begin a process that would uh, bring about some healing? So uh, that's where the idea got percolated. We first decided to have a mass trial and just do it ourselves. But after some investigation, the idea of a truth and reconciliation uh, commission came up. We were helped with this thinking by Lisa Magarel with the International Center for Transitional Justice. And after working with this for six or seven months, we decided that the way to do this was to uh, organize uh, a grassroots democratic process that had as its purpose truth-seeking, restorative justice, reconciliation, forgiveness, and healing. And that came in about 2001, and it took us about three years to get to the point. Well, when was the commission established? In 2004? It took us about three years to organize that process such that we could actually uh, see the commission and be detached from that commission and allow the process to unfold. You didn't ask for all of that, but no, I thought no, I'd tell you. Thank, you. thank you. Thank you very much. Ms. Johnson, given all of that, mm-hmm. I think it's my understanding that nevertheless there was considerable resistance. There was. There was. There was. There is. Um, and the resistance came from many places. When we talked about... Um, forgiveness and healing, and um, there are some uh, videos you can see, and particularly in some of the African-American communities, people said, what? Like, now I know Nelson's become a a minister during this process, but there's a limit to this thing, because we were out there, because, you know, it wasn't just us. There were, the the community was gathered at this march, and um, folk were not into this forgiveness because they knew there was still police brutality. There were just all kinds of injustices um, still in the community. Then on the other side of the town, they would say stuff like, you know, we've elected Nelson to the Chamber of Commerce. Um, George, you're doing great over there at the university, bringing in, you know, millions of dollars of uh, research and whatever. Like, why do y'all want to get this and mess the city up like this. Was this sort of the white community? Oh, yeah, yeah, you know. And then there were some also people in the African-American community, sort of the apologists who want things to, you know, go along to get along. So um, it was really with um, a lot of prayer and reflection. It really, um, this whole process has been very spiritually grounded, and that really got um, strengthened as we were just privileged to have the opportunity to interact with um, the Archbishop Tutu. Um, every time there was um, a public hearing, someone from South Africa made that long trip over and um, was with us. Um, we interact with people from Peru. We had the opportunity to go to Peru in 2002 and sit with other people from Ghana around the world who had truth commissions and help teach us about what was going on. And we found out, though we were being um, really attacked in the, in the media or either ignored, either way, um, for having the audacity as the victims, and we then called ourselves the survivors, to think we could bring this process about. We learned that that's, those are the only people who will, that around the world is those who are most impacted, who really push for this um, justice, this truth, but ultimately the healing. So we got um, 
taught and emboldened and encouraged by interacting with people from around the world as well as those in this country. So yeah, the resistance was there, but gradually people started coming. We would even get encouragement from inside the um, police force. Y'all stay at it. You know, people just whisper things like, keep going. But officially, there was very little support. We, as a nonprofit, make it from, you know, right into foundations, local and national. The money stopped. We had to lay off. I mean, because folk were just putting the word out, don't deal with these folk. They're just trying to mess up our community. But the Andrews Family Fund um, came through um, and really supported us and gradually then we started getting, you know, more support again. But it was, uh, as the young folk would say, a mixed bag. But thank goodness we um, had the unity and the persistence to keep going. Uh, Reverend Sills, perhaps as an insider, as it were, you were involved both in the selection committee process and eventually became a commissioner. Perhaps you can share with us some of your insights from that close-in position. It was an interesting process. Uh, I, I had originally accepted a, a role uh, representing the uh, Christian clergy of the city, Protestant and Catholic, uh, on the uh, selection panel, and then discovered that someone had nominated me, and I had to, I had to answer the question, if, if uh, selected, would I, would I serve? That was a tough, tough question to answer because it meant a, a great deal of work. And I run a nonprofit uh, charitable organization, educational organization that struggles every day to find funding to survive. And the thought that I was going to be taking time and energy away from that uh, was it's kind of a scary thought. And at first, I, I was not going to do that. Uh, and then it was like, like Nelson and Joyce, it was my wife who said, you know, you really have an opportunity here that's too good to pass up. And uh, after reflecting on it, I agreed to, to accept a nomination, which means I had to leave the selection panel. I could no longer be on that. So after, after that, I don't know how the discussions went. I just know that each person who was nominated was, was c contacted to see if they would serve. And there was a lot of pressure on people not to serve. Uh, it was interesting to me because I interact with clergy of all faith traditions uh, in our city. Uh, as I moved around the city, how many clergy came up to me to encourage me, saying this is a good thing for our city, and how many came up and said, please don't do this, it's going to do great harm to our city. And interestingly, I got a lot more of that please don't do this from clergy in the black community than in the white community. Uh, it, it was a shocking thing to me. It's, uh, I thought I was fairly sophisticated about issues of race and, and division. Uh, but there was a lot of fear in the black community. There was a lot of fear, especially among uh, the more privileged black community, that this was going to upset things and create a backlash and, and uh, cause problems. And so they'd rather just not deal with it. Um, most of the white clergy didn't feel that way, but I can tell you the business community did. We had a lot of flack from business leaders who thought this was going to create uh, a black eye, as they put it, on the city. Uh, it would hurt publicity. It would damage efforts to attract new businesses. Uh, economic development would be set back by doing something like this. Um, so, so there was this huge resistance, and it was pretty pervasive through the community. Uh, I want to remind you all that the 
full report as well as the uh, lengthy executive summary of the Commission's report is available online and uh, I believe we're going to have a link uh, at the OSI Baltimore site that will direct you to it for those of you who want some help getting there. Um, Reverend Johnson, where's the community today on these issues? Well, let me say that um, I think that we are farther along than we were in 79. Um, <laughs> and uh, I say that because there, as I speak, is an ongoing brewing set of struggles in our city in which race is central. And a lot of people don't see the progress. But uh, <clears throat> Mark, uh, Reverend Seal said a few minutes ago that this was pushed so deep into the subconsciousness. A lot of people knew about it, but it just left them. And it was like water soaking into the ground. Uh, but it's toxin. And then the groundwater is toxin. And people... <laughs> drink of it, and do not know why they are ill, don't know why people can't get along. What this did was to surface this, to bring it right up in the fullness of day, and against a withering opposition, compel the community to engage it. And uh, significant sectors of our community did engage it. And uh, over all the fears uh, of a black eye, and uh, of being manipulated. Uh, it ended up that the African-American clergy gathered before every hearing and had a spiritual service. And that uh, so people uh, haltingly and stumbling <laughs> came up to the line of justice. Um, and where I think we are now is that I think no one is kidding themselves about whether or not we have a race problem. <laughs> We have a major race problem. And I think that we are further along because we recognize it and we're working on it and we have made some significant progress on it, although it's hard for people to read. I often say this, and I'll end with this. Um, you know, uh, if you got water and you put a little flame under it uh, and you put your finger in it, you couldn't measure whether it was heating or not. Uh, but if the flame stays under there long enough, it actually warms it up. So I want to say that this is a persistent, we have to be persistent in this. If you think that a few hearings and some photo ops with Klan coming to meeting and people shaking hands and that kind of thing, it's much deeper than that. And I think that what we have to do is that this allowed us to see the depths of it, to appreciate it, to work with it, and to make the de decision that we are going to stay with it until, um, until we die. I, just, I mean, that's what, what some of us are committed to do because it needs to be done. Uh, I will say this. I'm concerned that uh, the next couple of years the race question will intensify. Uh, the economic question will not be resolved. And the race question becomes the biggest scapegoat as I listen to the drugs, the school, and the jail, what a trinity. <laughs> uh, and so I would say that we are making progress in Greensboro. Uh, it's hard. It's not easy. 
but we've come a good little ways, and I think we are positioned to go much further. Uh, thank you, Reverend Johnson. I think you've, you've actually touched on this, but I'd like each of you uh, to share with us what you think the lessons of other communities might draw from the Greensboro experience. I'll start with you, Reverend Sills, and I'd like to hear from each of you on this. I think it's, uh, it's easy to think that a community needs a, a defining moment like this massacre to, to create the justification for something like a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but I would suggest to you that wherever there has been persistent racism, persistent discrimination, persistent division, um, there's, there's cause for this kind of investigation, reporting, and reconciliation process. Uh, the, the value of what we accomplished in Greensboro, and one of the values, was, uh, as, as uh, Brother Johnson has, has made clear, the, the bringing out into the open of what had been kept hidden. Uh, it's not so much that the commissioners uh, came to a conclusion, some of us rather reluctantly, uh, that authorities, uh, including the police department, had intentionally taken steps that led to these deaths. Um, that's bad enough. But I think the, the more important thing was that these conversations took place out in the open where people could participate. And it engaged not just a, a looking at the facts of that day or the facts immediately around that day, but a going back and finding out what historically led up to that day and what continues on into the future that needs to change. It's not so much the recommendations that were made as it is that the community has had to struggle with the ideas of those recommendations, some of which have been implemented, many of which have not, but all of them have stimulated discussion and, and struggle uh, of, a, of an ethical sort about what should we be doing in our community. And so things have changed. Uh, people are more trusting of each other, and there's more likelihood of dialogue when there's a problem to be confronted than there was before, and any community would benefit from that. Ms. Johnson. Um, two things I want to say. One is that, as um, several people have alluded to, we have had the honor of traveling to several cities in this country um, to share our story. So, again, we are privileged to be here, but we've been to Anniston, Alabama, where um, uh, the great company Monsanto released barrels and barrels of toxin um, waste as they produced the beautiful um, textiles that many of us have used on our bedding and what have you. But as we were there for three or four days, um, the funerals, you know, from people from the cancer and all this type of thing was just very apparent, but there's a great denial there as well. But that mayor um, welcomed us, and there was a lot of conversation, so they may yet do something. Um, some of us have been to um, Mississippi, um, and they started a process, um, or sort of stagnating with them, but for those of you who are at least my age, you, you remember the stories of Mississippi from the past and probably um, currently as well. Lynchburg, Virginia where public schools were closed down. I remember being in Richmond where um, black students had to come and live with relatives there to finish high school because the high schools closed rather than integrate. So there were just a lot of examples um, where people um, came to learn about this process. 
But the other thing I want to say is that um, even in the midst of all the conversation about the economy and what have you, there's always um, us old folk talking about what's wrong with the young folk. They were saying that when I was young two years and years ago. But a lot of what's wrong with young folk is because we have not spoken the truth. We have really invited them into a world that's built on denial and illusions and oppression and what have you. We found that during this process of um, engaging this truth process, there are five, um, really six institutions of higher learning in, in Greensboro. Young people come. There are going to be some students in, in, from Princeton in Greensboro tomorrow who are coming to this table to find out how did you do this. We need to know really how can we build a better world based on some truth and really building some possibilities. So we have worked with um, youth that are in gangs, all sorts of places, because they've now seen us as some old folk who will stand up and be truthful and be persistent and really admit some errors we made, but call on the system, the institutions, to also admit to that and then us work it together. So as um, Dr. Seals mentioned, our process has been one of the most democratically um, run operations. And it was really, I come from a tradition of making a way out of no way. We had no money. We had no governmental support. We had not even many of our friends at first supporting this, yet it has grown into something that now other people are looking to. So it, it, it brought a sense that everyday citizens, residents who care can make a difference can and must make a difference. So that's the main thing I think that we take away. Whatever form that might take in Baltimore, it means it's a place for young people, old people, black people, Latino people, Asian people, whomever. And so um, that's what I think we mainly have to offer to you. Reverend Johnson, speaking of Baltimore, it's a good place, it's a good town, it's a segregated town. Um, are there lessons for us here in Baltimore from your work in Greensboro? I think so. I think one of the um, joys of this work is that we never felt that it was just about Greensboro. Uh, we think that the idea of truth-seeking and um, truth-speaking, uh, restorative justice, uh, with an outlook of wanting people to reconcile and be healed is something that uh, I think just about every city of any size could benefit from. And I want to say just uh, in one of Bishop Tutu's meetings, uh, visits to Greensboro, Joyce and I had dinner with him, and he asked us, do you think, that the truth process will catch on in the United States. Uh, and I gave pause to it. Uh, and he, and I told him, I think if this piece in Greensboro can be relatively authentic, if it doesn't give up on the quest for truth and uh, barter for something uh, considerably less than that, that it could be inspiring. If it's just a kind of showpiece, uh, it probably won't mean much. So um, uh, I would say these are the things that I would leave with you. 
One is that it is very necessary to undertake some process in a systematic way. You may not call it a truth and reconciliation process. As you go into it, know that what you're dealing with is not something that's easy or will quickly go away, and that people come sometimes pretty quick to it, but you need a, a committed center, uh, a group of people who are parties of the first part, who have been the most abused, the most marginalized, uh, they will tend to stay with it. Um, by the way, I would offer another piece of advice from the bishop. He said that unless this process is spiritually grounded, that you don't have the energy <laughs> and the power to make it through. Um, and so I took that seriously. And people access that in many different ways, so please don't misunderstand me. Um, you know, I love the Native American traditions and how they do what they do. And, uh, and so I would say that those things um, um, are necessary, the commitment to some process. And I think it has to be structured in such a way that it has an organic connection to the place wherever it is. We could not take uh, the process of South Africa or Peru or Ghana and just say we're going to use that. We actually shape something different. And Alex Bahrain, who was the president of the International Center for Transitional Justice, when we had the honor of going to South Africa and meeting with our friends there who had come to meet with us, he said that I'm not so sure that non-governmental processes might not be the way that truth commissions have to go. Because when they get into the hands of the government, uh, the politics plays too great a role. Mm -hmm. And so a citizen-led process uh, that's built from the ground up and is uh, deeply rooted in the uh, tradition of grassroots democracy, he said that I think that uh, he shared with us that he thought that the Greensboro experience was the best non-governmental process that he had seen, uh, and that he was wrestling with the question of whether or not we ought not to promote more non-governmental processes. And I want to uh, commend that to Baltimore. Not that you don't work with the government, but you don't give them the whole thing. Because <laughs> some people get thrown out of office, others are making deals. It's far less of that um, when you have a group of committed citizens with those who are scarred and who have bared the pain of this at the center of it. Well, that's, a, that's an excellent segue to what is just an entire collection here of great questions. Uh, and I'm afraid that we're not going to have time, so forgive me if I don't get, get to ask yours. But uh, one uh, really is excellent uh, uh, segue into, uh, from, from what you just said, Reverend Johnson, we have a representative here from um, from East Baltimore, my part of town, All right. uh, who is working with a community of 2,000 families who have been displaced by Johns Hopkins Hospital decision to create hmm. uh, a new community. And this person reports that uh, they are, in the way you just described, I think, without government involvement, trying to create a truth and reconciliation process 
to heal the wounds that have been inflicted on the community as a result of mass uh, relocation and reconstruction, hopeful reconstruction of housing and community centers over in East Baltimore. So they want to know how do, how do they get um, social justice workers from all ethnicities to come to the table and assist in this work in East Baltimore with Johns Hopkins, the greatest hospital in the world, mm -hmm. we're told. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Where is the person, if you don't mind? Okay. Um, we did all sorts of things. A, a, a lot of the answers you probably have already, um, but we literally sat down and made lists. But the list came from people with whom we had worked for so many years, contrary to the the, the, the story that we were outsiders, um, we had worked, um, we got married in 1969, so we'd lived there since that time. Um, so we knew people from the work we'd done in the communities around the various issues. But make a list of who is it who really is committed to the fundamental things, um, the who, who is going to be working with some integrity and stay with it, and, and who knows what sector of people. And we really had just to go and sit and talk with folks and share our ideas, debate it, incorporate their concepts, and it just grew from a few to a few more to a few more. So it's just those basic um, approaches, and we ultimately then wrote up something called a mandate that we all agreed on and signed, and then formulated a whole um, way to con um, select people and make sure that you go beyond as much as you can those who agree with you. But you've got to start with people who do agree so that you know you're going to be able to hold that. But um, don't be afraid to, to venture out as long as you've got a strong center. Did, Could did I it? just underscore yes, one thing? I think it's so important to spend time with the group and the leadership of the group in that community so that they are really, really clear uh, that this is what we want to do and build into it some measure of restorative justice because how are you made whole uh, by this? And what role does John Hopkins have in that? That's a, that's a, that's a big push. So I want to say one is, is spend time with that initial group because unless we were really united, the 10 or 12 of us at the center of this, we, we just couldn't have made it happen. Number two is carefully and systematically wrap some people around that, you know, and reach out to people and have quality discussions with them. Um, and as George said, make a list. Before we got to the level of doing a um, uh, mandate, we wrote a declaration of intent. In other words, we declared clearly what we were going to do. This is what we are doing. This is why we are doing it. And we got 31 people to sign it. Because if you just talk with people and say, you, you agree with us on this, and they say, yeah, uh, people need to join the declaration. <laughs> I'm not sure there would be a United States unless somebody declared that there ought to be and that we are going to do everything we can to make this happen and get those people in that circle. And actually out of that will come the wisdom. I would also say as soon as you get to a certain point, I would contact 
uh, the International Center for Transitional Justice in New York City because they were of enormous help to us in helping us shape a process that uh, invited everyone to be in, but it was shaped in such a way that no one group could control it. Three-part question. Did any of the perpetrators ask for forgiveness? Did they apologize? Did any victims offer forgiveness? Yeah. Yes. Reverend Sills? Yes, both, uh, both publicly and privately. Uh, there were, there were uh, examples of, of that quest for forgiveness, that admission of wrongdoing, that admission of I wish that had never happened. I wished I had never been part of that. And there was also public and private expressions of forgiveness. Uh, there were, we talk about truth and reconciliation, and an awful lot of the work that the commission did was focused on truth-finding and truth-speaking. But the public hearings we did, as well as some of the private interviews we did, as well as some activities that spun off from that where where some of the survivors met with some of the perpetrators privately. Um, th those, were, those were times when true reconciliation was taking place. Healing was being experienced on, on all sides. Whether the larger communities has experienced that, I would have to say to some degree there has been some reconciliation. It's a long way from finished. It's still a process. It's still, it's still going on. But, uh, but the steps toward that ultimate goal are, are being taken. Mm -hmm. I, I just want to be concrete on what did you want to say. Go ahead. Um, Roland Wayne Woods, a Nazi who had a cigarette dangling from his lip firing into the crowd. We're not clear who killed who. But Sidney Waller, who's Jewish, husband was killed. And uh, Woods, during this process, got in touch with her and said how awful he felt. And uh, she asked me to go with her, and we went over to Winston-Salem. And uh, I allowed her and her son to go in. Uh, and there, his father had been killed, uh, and the husband of Signe, and they spent half an hour with Woods. I joined them, and uh, the short version of that is uh, he, he was a huge man, uh, and he sat on the bed and cried. Um, and we, we don't share this story a whole lot, uh, but uh, he said that, and he told us some things about the pressure that was put on him by the BATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearm, to come to the demonstration, or he would lose the command of his Nazi troops. Um, and he shared rather candidly. I don't know how much of this he told the commission, uh, but he, 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 he then just wept and said he had, thank God, had forgiven him, but he had not forgiven himself. And so I said, listen, Roland, uh, it has happened. The best you can do right now is to accept the forgiveness, because that's all forgiving yourself really means. And we had prayer with a Jewish mother 
her son and myself in that room. Now, it may not have happened for a whole lot of folk in Greensboro, but something marvelous happened in that room that day. And uh, I think that it's possible for that to happen on a larger scale, and that we've not given up on that. But we always try to build into this work that just the act of forgiveness is so necessary, but restorative justice has to be right beside it. Those two things, I think that's what forgiveness means. Wood didn't have anything to give. He was uh, poor, but he gave his heart, and we thank God for it. Mm -hmm. I want to add two other concretes as well related to that. Um, At one point, um, those who were survivors, particularly the um, uh, widows and widower, um, Mark Smith, wrote a letter and we uh, appealed to the, I guess, the district attorney and then whoever the appropriate person, to, uh, the attorney would general, know, attorney general, to not bring any um, uh, legal convictions or, or charges against anyone based on what might come out during the hearing. And we said we were sort not of a form interested. Of amnesty. Yeah, amnesty. yeah mm-hmm. yes, we were not interested in, in um, retributive justice. We really were looking for restorative justice and that we thought that it was not going to help, certainly not bring back any of the people who were killed, but it would not help our community to have just some aging clansmen and Nazis jailed. We really wanted to get at the roots of what were the causes of this kind of thing from happening from the beginning. So that was one concrete, and that got rejected, by the way. But, um, you know, we, we asked for it. But another aspect of um, forgiveness that happened was there were some people in the community um, the African-American and the white community, the, uh, we did, did not have much of a Latino or Asian population at that time, who came forth and asked for forgiveness and said, Joyce, I know what happened. I saw it, I was there, or I saw it on TV, and I turned my back. Mm-hmm. And people just wept and said, you know, it was wrong for me to do that. And I was able to forgive, forgive them, you know, um, because... As we know, injustices can only obtain if people are silent about it. And so there were people who, no, did not pull the trigger, trigger, <laughs> but perpetrated the, this whole false story by being silent. Uh, Ms. Johnson, I think it was you uh, who mentioned that Greensboro is a college town. Mm-hmm. And the question is, uh, is the fact that it's a college town help, hinder, the work of the commission, or was it a neutral factor? I think it was all three at different points of time. Um, Enormous help. Yeah, it, it helped um, so much because you did, in fact, have professors and um, curious students and just uh, the, uh, the institutions of, of, of learning um, being a place where you could have discussions, debates. Though there were times we could not get a place to meet. Um, Thank God there was and is a Bennett College for Women um, because that was a place where we could often go when we could not go anywhere else. Even while I was uh, um, a professor on the campus of North Carolina A&T, there were times when people did not want me to do certain kinds of things. At one point in time, the SBI, again, actually came to my dean. Most of us lost our jobs after 1979. I was one of the few of maybe the only person who kept my job. And my dean in the School of Business said, I'm from Alabama. I know what the Klan is and what have you, but it's like make sure you do your job, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's because I've been basically ordered to fire you 
and he refused to fire me. So I was only one of a bunch of people who had a job for a while. A bunch of us had just to move into a house together to survive. But um, so yeah, the college campus was what you would expect the college campus to be. Um, but I said the the neutral part sometimes because again people get uh, getting funded from different places and a lot of pressure was brought on a lot of people in ways that you just would not imagine. I, I would not have imagined had I not um, lived through it. But in general, I feel we are uh, developing a core of young people along with their professors who are becoming ambassadors for this type of way of doing work. There's so many research papers, so many doctoral dissertations that have been completed um, as a result of what we've done. This attendee points out that one similarity between Greensboro and Baltimore is the role of at least some police officers in perpetrating past and current injustices, uh, and in particular against the black community. And so the question is whether the police department in Greensboro was involved in the truth and reconciliation process, and what you can suggest, perhaps, if anything, to involve the police in Baltimore in such a process. I can't give a, uh, a very straight answer to that question. The, um, there were police officers who gave testimony to the commission. Uh, one of those uh, came to us and said that he had had a change of heart after refusing to give testimony and decided that it was in the best interest of the community, even though his, the leadership in the police department did not want him to. He, he, he agreed to give us testimony. And we always interviewed those giving public testimony uh, at length, privately, so that we had no surprises when it came to the public testimony. Uh, so we, we commissioners knew what was going to be said when it came to public uh, hearings, before, before those hearings. And this was the one time we broke our own rules and allowed an officer to give testimony without having gone through the interview process first. And when he got on the stand and gave his testimony, it was almost exactly the opposite of what he told us privately he was going to say. Uh, and it, it turned out that as we talked with some, some other folks who were sympathetic within the police department, uh, that, that this was a strategy, that, that he had been prompted to do that. Uh, the police attorney and the city attorney uh, advised officers not to give testimony, and when they discovered retired officers who were planning to give testimony, they went to them and begged them, or more or less ordered them, not to. Uh, and so it made it very difficult for us to get uh, police testimony. We also had requested quite a few documents from the police, and the police chief indicated that he would process them and get them to us but he didn't. He sat on them and sat on them and sat on them. Months and months and months went by. Uh, and fortuitously, this is one of those wonderful events that happens. He was fired. <laughs> and the unintended consequence of that was the new chief coming in uh, immediately released all the documents we were waiting for, and this was just a few weeks before the deadline for the issuance of our report. And one of the one of the key pieces of evidence was the police radio transcripts of that day. 
uh, we were able to, to listen to every conversation that took place on all three police bands that day, which sealed the deal, folks. I mean, it proved that the police had intentionally left the scene and held a, away from the scene so that the Klansmen and Nazis could engage in this battle. Um, had we not had that, we would have only been able to, to issue a report based on conjecture and, and good, good sense. But with that information, we were able to issue a report that was based on irrefutable fact. Uh, so police involvement is, it, it would have helped to have had more, but we found a way uh, to get around the roadblock that uh, the police provided. Anything to add to Reverend Johnson or Ms. Johnson? Well, it's a bit of irony, really, that um, Dr. Vincent Harding, who was the first director of the King Institute in Atlanta, uh, a friend was with us, and we had a meeting with the police chief, Chief White, uh, before the chief you talk about. Uh, And he pushed him real hard to say, you've got to put somebody in this process and join uh, the discussion. And he assigned um, Captain Charles Cherry. I don't know if you knew that. I did not. Uh, And he attended several meetings. But when uh, he left and the chief that sat on the information came, he immediately withdrew him. Uh, right now, uh, Cherry uh, has been fired by the police department about five days ago because he's insisted on standing for the truth, a 23-year captain. And there's a kind of thread there. So I want to say this. I think that the police, in the Greensboro case, I think the police, and, and this is just my view, essentially organized a counter-demonstration, which was a North American death squad. Knew they were coming, uh, gave them the parade permit, uh, saw them load these guns in the car, and then went off to lunch when they knew what they were planning to do. Uh, So I think the police has to be brought under greater civilian, uh, how can I say, um, oversight. Uh, I just think that has to happen in cities. People have gotten used to abusing poor uh, black uh, uh, men in particular. Uh, And it has to be corrected, and black officers get in, and they are pulled into that. And so I do think that uh, in looking at a situation in a city, that it makes sense to look very carefully at the police department uh, and to figure out what are the necessary things that a city ought to do to improve its police department and ensure that they are enforcing the law fairly and equally. Well, the, the three of you have educated and inspired us in an extraordinary way, and I want to thank you. I want to give each of you uh, an opportunity to make a closing statement, as it were, uh, starting with... Start with Mark. He's the commissioner. <laughs> Reverend Sills. I think it's very important for, uh, for every community to intentionally and systematically 
set out to speak the truth about its heritage and its its past. We we tend to forget uh, where we come from and why we are the way we are. Uh, in the work that I do now, I work largely with uh, immigrants and refugees. And a goodly number of the people I work with are undocumented immigrants who are today the, the, the targets so often of um, the kind of racism and xenophobia that we, we would like to think does not exist in our society and oftentimes the target of police abuse. Uh, they live in fear uh, every day. They're afraid to drive their cars. They're afraid to go to work. Their children are afraid they won't come They'll come home from school and find their parents gone. It's, it's not a sustainable kind of situation. And every community of size in our country is dealing with that issue. Uh, and yet we tend to forget those of us who have Italian heritage. You know, um, Italians had a nickname for a long time. They were called WAPs. We forget that was an official government term for people who were without papers when they arrived. Those of us who have a Scotch-Irish background forget that over half the Irish people who came into the United States couldn't afford to pay the tax to enter the country, and so they entered illegally by going to Canada and then crossing the border so they couldn't be charged that tax. Um, we forget those kinds of things if we don't go back and look and then speak the truth so that we can address contemporary realities from a position of truth-telling. Uh, there are lots of things like that that we need to go back and look at. And having been part of this process has caused me to go back and look at my own heritage and discover that my, my ancestors crossed a border illegally, which has made me far more compassionate to those people I work with <laughs> who are coming here from Mexico uh, uh, because they have no choice to survive. Uh, and so uh, it, it, it helps us all to, to do that kind of thing. I would encourage you to find some way to look at your own heritage as a community and speak the truth about those things that will empower you as a people to solve the problems you face today. Ms. Jones. Oftentimes, um, we were asked, why did this happen in Greensboro? What, um, what precipitated the um, tragedy, and then what uh, forces um, came into play to make your long-term response possible? I don't know the final answers. I, I really don't. Um, but I can offer a few things. If you, if it, you know anything about Greensboro, you probably have heard that the first sit-ins at Woolworths happened in Greensboro in 1960. And by the way, some people who were integral parts of that have work, worked with us um, on this whole um, endeavor. Um, but the five people who were killed, I um, often wanted um, to lift them up. When we are doing these sessions ourselves, we usually give people just a, a moment to um, breathe in and think about those five people who were wonderful young folk, you know, 31 years ago, who um, had all kinds of avenues for a future, um, but chose to try to make a real difference, not just for themselves and their immediate families, but really for their larger communities, for the world. 
Um, so we walk in that tradition and really invite others to, in whatever way it makes sense for you to do the same. And um, I think that what we offer is a sense that um, if everyday people interact with each other, make your list, talk to your neighbors, your friends, folk who maybe you don't think are your friends, um, seek some mutual understanding, commit yourselves, and dare, you know, to take a risk. We're always talking about being risk takers to make money. What about being risk takers to really make friends, to really make community, to really make a difference <laughs> under people's lives? Um, that's, for me, ultimately what um, genuine, uh, authentic democracy is about. Um, rendering the, the greatest possibilities for each and every person, whether no matter how they came across the border. Some of us got dragged over here. Some of us came running over here. It's all kinds of different ways, but we're here now. The question is, what are we going to do with this common place that we find ourselves on? Mm -hmm. And the answer lies within us. And I just urge you to seek, seek that in yourselves um, and seek it with one another and make a difference. We haven't gotten nearly as far as I know we must, but we are making steps. And if all of us just take those steps, this country needs this right now. Yes. <laughs> it needs it really bad. Mm -hmm. And... Um, it's going to take everyday people to do it. And the thing is, we can do it. I'm telling you, we could tell you all the stories of what, how we have made ways out of no way. You would be even more encouraged. So just kind of take my word for it, that you can do it if you would just give it a try and reach out to someone else. I want to say ditto to what both Mark and Joyce just said and to do my best not to repeat it. Um, we are largely what we are because of the history that produced us. Uh, it has built into it uh, blindness, prejudice, arrogance, uh, and a deep belief in the salvific power of violence itself. That's how we solve our problems. Uh, we're trained in a thousand ways um, to do that, while we're being entertained, how we celebrate our wars, and so forth. There's a connection, though, um, that you can't get all of this just looking back. In the case of Greensboro, uh, it would be a mistake for us to over-focus on the Klan and the Nazis. Mm -hmm. I have a slight difference with uh, part of the commission's report. Uh, and that is that the principal responsibility for this were the Klan and Nazis. I don't agree. I think the principal pos uh, responsibility lay with the police and then the textile industry uh, that was connected to all of this where we were doing organizing. Then uh, the media that actually... Um, fed people a daily diet of distortions and falsehoods. And then the court, which chose an all-white jury, and in the face of videotape evidence, allowed the demonizing of people to occur, deeply tied in with Marxism and communism, 
such that people's humanity was taken away. The Klan just couldn't do that. <laughs> it required a network of institutions working in, and so as we approach this, the Klan is, was a window into something much bigger than what they were, that they neither understood nor controlled. It has been relatively easy, and relative is the, I want to underline that, to sit down with Klan members and sit down with Nazis. It has been next to impossible to do that with the police or the court system or the media. And that is the work that we have to engage. And I want to say, finally, uh, that the struggle has to be uh, for justice, but I want to put a strong emphasis on restorative justice, that we have to restore the brokenness that we come with out of history and not even know it. We have to help each other be whole. And uh, finally, don't be afraid of forgiveness and reconciliation. Uh, it seems like a weak thing to some people, but it takes a lot of power a lot of power to look through uh, the evil actions of people and yet see the kernel of possibility within that person who has some possibilities. And even if that person doesn't ever rise out of whatever situation they're in, your engaging of them in a certain spirit lifts you higher and lifts all of those around you higher. So don't be afraid of it. It is not weakness. It is not the lack of courage. It is what I believe that this society, this city, this nation, and indeed our world needs, and that is to unlearn the fallacious notion that violence itself can ever produce an enduring peace, that something much more powerful than that has to happen. And uh, I would just leave you with that thought. On behalf of uh, Open Society Institute Baltimore, we thank Dr. Uh, Hayden. We thank you all for being here.